Are we stuck? Can, can you advance that slide for me? I think we're stuck. Thank you. It says, uh, Paul says, same Paul, we're reading about in Acts 18, he says, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, okay? So we are praying that for ourselves and for our church family every day, asking God for open doors. So in Acts 18, Paul goes into Ephesus, he goes into the synagogue, and he tells them about Jesus, which is his pattern, and they say, hey, stay longer, tell us more, and he says, no thanks. Okay. Now, now when, somebody, when, you, when you tell somebody about Jesus and they say, hey, stick around, tell us more, that sounds like an open door. Um, yet Paul declines. Why doesn't Paul act on the open door? Now, Luke, Luke doesn't explain it all straight up, but some of the things behind this could simply be, as we said, he's just passing through Ephesus on his way back to his sending church in, um, in Antioch. So it may be that's the drive of this trip. And another possibility is that that vow he made, some vows required fulfillment ultimately in Jerusalem. And so he may need to get back to Jerusalem in time for the Passover to fulfill that vow. Uh, that's another option. But I wonder too if he's not mindful of the last thing that we heard about Asia in the book of Acts. If you went back just a couple pages in your Bible to Acts 16, Paul and his companions went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia because they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia where Ephesus was. And so God may not have reopened that door at this time. It could be a mix of all of those kind of reasons. But what it's not is a lack of desire. Paul really wants to stay. In verse 21, on taking leave of them in Ephesus, he says to them, I'll return to you if God wills. And then he set sail from Ephesus. So he wants to return, but perhaps after the door of Asia being closed to him by the Holy Spirit, he realizes this is in God's hands. Okay? As Proverbs says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So, Paul in verse 22, when he had landed, he left there, he landed at a place called Caesarea. He went up, it says, and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. So, uh, back to the geography lesson. Paul has left Corinth where he was last week, right? He's traveled over to Ephesus briefly. They invite him to stay. He says, can't stay. Got to go. But if the Lord opens the door, I'll be back. So he, he travels all this way to Caesarea down here. And it says then he went up, right? Um, exactly how it says. He says he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So this up down language is usually associated with Jerusalem. You always went up to Jerusalem, right? Kind of like uh, it's a really important place. Like it's not so much an elevation as it is importance. So he got down to Caesarea. There's a good chance he went up to Jerusalem and then down to Antioch, and he's back home. He's back at his sending church, just like what we did with uh, Moose Myers and Ashley, right? We sent him out, 10 years army chaplain, Last year, they came back, and, and they have been with us for a while. And then in similar fashion, uh, they, are, they are sent on out. Um, 
Back in verse 23, it says, uh, after spending some time there in Antioch, back home, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Okay? So, Paul finishes his second missionary journey, gets back to Antioch, and now, after a little time there, he's sent out again on what we would call his third missionary journey. This time, it's interesting, he goes on foot. Okay, so this is the map of his third journey. Okay, so he's back in Antioch and he gets started out. He's trying to get first to Ephesus. Now, the fastest way to get to Ephesus from Antioch is to hop a ship down here, cruise around the coast, and land at the port of Ephesus. You could get there a lot faster. But he chooses another route. He chooses to walk, to go by foot to Ephesus. It's about 800 miles. Okay? If you're walking every day but the Sabbath, that's about nine weeks of solid walking. It's not far off of walking to Chicago from here. Okay? Now, why would Paul do that? Why walk all the way when you could save all that wear and tear on your sandals and just catch a ship? And I think the, really the key is that last little bit of this verse, verse 23. It says, after spending time there, he departed. He went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Okay. Paul went this way so he could strengthen all the disciples and visit the churches he's planted along the way. Okay. Back to geography class. Okay, this is his first journey, Paul's first journey. You notice he's up in this region here. A lot, uh, visiting Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. His second journey, notice where does he go? He leaves Antioch and he goes back to those same, through those same set of cities. His third missionary journey, where does he go? He chooses to walk the 800 miles that takes him right through those same cities that we've read about earlier in the book of Acts where Paul led people to faith in Jesus and churches were begun there. He's returning to visit the churches he planted on his early journeys, places like Derby and Lystra and Iconium, to strengthen them in the faith. He's committed. You get the sense, Paul is committed. When you look at those maps, he's committed to strengthening the faith of the disciples in the churches. I mean, 800 miles of walking kind of committed. Okay, that's committed when you're, when you're willing to do that. And so what I think we're looking in on in the passage we're looking at today is Two stories, two instances of disciples being strengthened along the way. One's by Paul himself, another one's by his co-laborers, Priscilla and Aquila, that couple from Corinth. Um, but to make sense out of these two stories, uh, I need to make sure that you understand some vocabulary uh, that I'm going to use. Okay, I'm not talking about uh, Greek or Hebrew I'm talking about uh, Southern, and in particular, I'm talking about Franklin County uh, speak. Some of you do not speak Franklin County. Unfortunately, you've been banned and you have to live in Wake County, but up in Franklin County, um, every once in a while, you hear somebody talk about someone, and they'll say, uh, he's a hot mess, okay? That, that person is a hot mess, and... Um, to make sense of that, it occur in a context like this. You have a conversation like this up where I live in Franklin County. You say, uh, somebody would say, oh, buddy, uh, on the way to Food Lion, he got a speeding ticket going one way, and then he got another one running a stop sign on the way back. 
he's a hot mess. Okay. Now, I know some of you don't speak like that. You don't really get what I just said, especially those of you who are in the seminary. So let me explain it to you in terms you might understand. You, you have a big paper on your personal eschatology, the, your personal views on the end of time. And so you turn it into your professor, you get it back with more red ink than black ink on your paper, and your professor would call that a theological hot mess, okay? <laughs> that's, that's what we're talking about. So today we're looking in on two hot messes uh, that happen in Acts 18 and then the beginning of 19, okay? One of them involves a guy named Apollos. There's a Jew named Apollos in verse 24, He's a native of Alexandria, and he came to Ephesus, okay, city where Paul is, or where, where he was. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So he's from Alexandria, Egypt. He's a Jew, and Alexandria is a city renowned for its education, legendary library that was there. He's a gifted communicator. He knew the scriptures well. He'd been taught in the way of the Lord. He's fervent in spirit, could be small s, could also be fervent in the Holy Spirit, the big S, capital S. He was teaching accurately the things about Jesus. If you skip down a verse or two, we'll find out that he's boldly refuting the Jews in the synagogue, not unlike Paul himself. And so far, it sounds really good, doesn't it? I mean, this sounds like the kind of professor whose class you want to take, right? He's eloquent, he's competent in the Scriptures, he's got a PhD in the way of the Lord, he's a passionate, accurate teacher of Christology. That's our guy. One little bump, though, and that happens, uh, it says in the next verse, he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Okay, I don't know what exactly what that means, but obviously it's not good. Okay, Luke is presenting it as a deficiency in what this great teacher believed, okay? what he understood. Now, what, what does that mean? Some have suggested that means he's actually a disciple of John. And as such, he knew there was a Messiah coming, but he didn't know that Jesus was the one John was pointing to. And as such, some would say he was not even really fully a Christian. He was kind of like a holdover from the Old Testament. Someone believed that there was a Messiah, but was still waiting for Him to come. Now, I think more likely is the other view that, that he simply lacked understanding in the area of Christian baptism. He was familiar with John's baptism, a baptism that was for repentance in anticipation of the coming Messiah, but not Christian baptism unto faith and into Christ. But it raises questions. Is our professor even saved? Okay. Maybe worse yet, is he even Baptist? Okay. I don't know. This guy's pedigree's in question all of a sudden here. And so what we have is a little bit of a hot mess okay, happening in Ephesus with, with Apollos. Uh, in verse 26, Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So Priscilla and Aquila are this couple that had been working with the Apostle Paul in Corinth. Noah talked about them last week. For a year and a half, they're discipling with and being discipled by, in all likelihood, the Apostle Paul. 
Um, they've now come to Ephesus with Paul and stayed there, and they hear Apollos teach, and they recognize there's a gap in what he's teaching. So you get the sense that they discreetly take him aside. The, the NIV actually says that they took him to their home, and um, they instruct him. Explain to him more fully the way of the Lord. It's important what they do not do. They do not abandon him. They do not challenge him publicly. They do not tweet stuff like hashtag lousy teacher. Okay? They don't do that. They handle this really discreetly is the sense you get. Talking with him privately, explaining the way of God more accurately. And what seems to be of equal, if not greater, significance is that this great teacher, and Apollos is presented as an an amazing teacher here, he seems to accept it, as we'll see, uh, with great humility. Now, uh, when I was in seminary, um, it was not unusual for students to challenge their professors, to ask them accusatory questions. George is smiling. Never happens today, does it, George? Never happens. That was back in the day when I was in seminary. Uh, And so, you know, there was a lot of that that used to go on. You know, uh, students would try to instruct the professor. And I never saw a professor thank a student for that experience, okay? (laughs) Never never saw that really happen. Um, But this is handled differently here and responded to quite differently as a result. In verse 27, Apollos then, after being corrected by Priscilla and Aquila, he wants to go to cross to Achaia. That's where Corinth is. And the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So Apollos, after he has this positive encounter with um, Priscilla and Aquila and is corrected by them, he wants to go where the city of Corinth is, the region of Achaia, and the church is eager to send him. Okay? You know, they're, now they're tweeting ahead, hashtag great teacher, right? And as a result, the disciples, the church there is strengthened. Hot mess resolved. Okay. The thing that I want you to see, we'll come back to this, is that the hot mess is resolved and the disciples are strengthened through the accurate teaching of the Word. That's, that's very important. That's how the disciples are strengthened. Okay. Before we return to that idea, though, let's look at our second hot mess, second story we've got to look at. Starts chapter 19. Now, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth... Paul passed through the inland country and came back to Ephesus. Paul has made the 800-mile journey by foot back. He's now back in Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And so there's some real interesting kind of back and forth happening with Paul and Apollos at this point in time. Um, Paul was in Corinth, right? Last week Noah taught about that. He left Corinth. He went to Ephesus. And... Then he left and went back down here to Antioch. While he's there, Apollos comes to Ephesus, where Paul was. And where does he want to go then? He gets sent back to Corinth. And where does Paul come? He comes back to Ephesus, where Apollos was. So there's this back and forth. And you pick up on this 
um, in the letter to the first letter to the Corinthian church, where Paul says there, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. And they are partnering together, one after the other, as their ministries weave back and forth. But Paul's back in Ephesus now. He's made that long journey. And he's going to remain there for three years now or so. Apparently, God has willed for Paul to return to a really wide open door now um, in Ephesus and in Asia. And on his arrival, he finds some disciples. Our passage says, this is where the hot mess starts, right? Um, Let me go on a little bit. There we go. He said to them, Paul finds these disciples and he says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And at this point in time, we have a hot mess uh, going on here um, as Paul runs into these, uh, this situation with these believers um, or these disciples. Because we have disciples who not only didn't receive the Holy Spirit when they believed, but, but they don't even know that the Holy Spirit is available. Okay? They, they don't have any idea. They've never heard of Him, they say. And, and somewhat similar to Apollos, um, they're only mindful of John's baptism. They were only baptized into John's baptism, which is a baptism of repentance, getting ready for the Messiah to come. So who are these people? What kind of disciples are they? And some have suggested they could be genuine disciples of Jesus, just befuddled. Okay? They could be disciples of Apollos, and hence that's why they have the same misunderstanding about baptism. He only knew about John's baptism, and they do. Or they might be followers of John the Baptist, even. Um, and that's why they're familiar with that. And it's, the language is confusing, but it's helpful to see how Paul deals with them. Um, This is what Paul does. He says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in in Jesus. So Paul addresses them as kind of uh, truncated disciples, right? Um, Disciples who are familiar with John the Baptist and his ministry, but were not aware that John pointed to Jesus as the Christ, the one in whom they are to believe. See, John the Baptist said uh, back in John's gospel, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he goes on in his endorsement until John the Baptist says, I have seen and have borne witness that this Jesus is the Son of God. Somehow, These disciples had missed John's, though they knew of John's baptism, they didn't know he was a pointer to Jesus. And so Paul, even though his first insight into something wrong with them was that they didn't know about the Holy Spirit, he does not teach them about the Holy Spirit. He teaches them about Jesus, that Jesus is the one that John was pointing to. And it seems best to me then to understand that these disciples were not yet believers in Jesus, 
And that Paul's question about receiving the Holy Spirit when they believed was a diagnostic question he asked that yielded the insight that they were not really yet believers in Jesus. And that's why, instead of explaining to them the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, he went back and told them about Jesus. And as we'll see, um, with this teaching, the second hot mess is, is largely cleaned up. Because in verse 5, when they heard Paul teach them about who Jesus was, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. Um, John Stott says that they experienced a mini Pentecost, right? These 12 believers, 12 disciples. Better, he says, Pentecost caught up on them. Better still, they were caught up into it as its promised blessings became theirs. He says, the norm of Christian experience is a cluster of four things. Repentance, faith in Jesus, water baptism, and the gift of the Spirit. Though the perceived order may vary a little, the four belong together and are universal in Christian initiation. So what seems to have happened here is that they were, they were told the good news about Jesus they believed, received the Holy Spirit, and were baptized. And that was evident. The Spirit's presence was evident in these spectacular gifts of, of tongues and prophecy. Okay. Well, what I'd like to do with these two stories is, is put them side by side in your mind again and think with me about how the disciples were strengthened in these points along Paul's journey, which is why he went the way that he went. First, it's through the gracious, private, corrective teaching of Priscilla and Aquila to Apollos. Apollos is strengthened. And then through Apollos' humble acceptance of it and his accurate, spirit-emboldened teaching of the Scriptures, especially about Jesus, the disciples in Ephesus and in Corinth are strengthened. And again, in Ephesus, with these dozen disciples, the, these disciples are strengthened through the teaching of Paul about Jesus. And one of the things that's a common theme through all of this, you probably heard it, you get a sense for the centrality and the importance of accurate teaching about, about the Scriptures and about Jesus in particular, um, if you want to strengthen disciples. If you want to strengthen disciples, there's no substitute for knowing and teaching the Scriptures accurately. And this is not just for seminary folk. We're all called to make disciples. Probably Priscilla and Aquila were just a businessman and his wife. Uh, had businesses maybe in Ephesus and Corinth, for all we know. And they were making disciples by teaching the Word. Um, so whether you are teaching your children, discipling your children, discipling children in our children's ministry or, or our students or people at work or in your small group, however that's playing out for you, and, and non-negotiable in strengthening disciples is that you would know the Scriptures really, really well. You would know the Bible well. And, and this is simply not the case in, in the churches anymore. Um, Al Mohler writes, he cites some research by George Gallup and others, and he says, the, the problem squarely is that Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. He says, because they don't read it, they've become a nation of biblical illiterates. He says, fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
in case you're struggling, in case you're one of the half that's struggling with that, okay? Four of them. Many Christians cannot identify more than two or three of the disciples. There were 12. According to data from the Barna Research Group, 60% of Americans can't even name five of the Ten Commandments. Barna says no wonder people break the Ten Commandments all the time. They don't know what they are. Increasingly, America, he says, is biblically illiterate. Multiple surveys reveal the problem in stark terms. According to 82% of Americans, 82% of Americans, God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. Trust me, it's not. You can Google that one all day long. It's not in the Bible. The good news is is that born-again Christians do better. Only 81% of born-again Christians thought that was a Bible verse. We're 1% better than society at large. Um, He says some of the uh, statistics are enough to perplex even those who are aware of the problem. Barna Poll indicated that at least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. She wasn't, okay? You can Google that. She was, she was not. Now, this, uh, this, is, this is interesting. 50% of high school graduates, okay, this should pump you up to volunteer for student ministry, okay? 50% of high school graduates thought Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. 50%. Our kids are graduating from high school without even a fundamental knowledge of some of the core stories of the Bible. They were cities, in case you're wondering. He says this. He says, um, oh, here's another one. A considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. No. Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Christians who lack biblical knowledge are the products of churches that marginalize biblical knowledge, okay? We don't want to be that church because we don't want you to be that Christian that thinks that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife, okay? So we raise the bar here, um, and we encourage you strongly to get in the Bible, to study the Bible, to read the Bible, to learn to love the Bible, to even take classes that we offer here at the church in the Bible, in Building 6 at 9 o'clock, classes on the Bible. You can take classes like Respectable Sins. Okay? We're against them, not for them. But if you take the class, Jake Mason and some guys are teaching that class. It's fantastic. You can take a class called The Greatest Story You'll Ever Tell. Uh, Rich Holland and some guys are teaching that, and it's going to help you know how to share your faith in Jesus with someone. Who doesn't need that? Okay. There's one called Theology for Everyday Believer. And at this point, some people think we've just gone overboard. Because the seminary students, if they want theology, they can pay for it and take it down the street. And if I'm, a, if I'm a regular guy out in the marketplace, theology has nothing to do with my life. And I, I just want to say that, that then you're misunderstanding what theology is. It, it means knowing God. 
and it, and it covers all kinds of dimensions of your life. It covers the church. It covers what happens when you die. It covers what it means for you to know and trust and believe in Jesus. Um, so many things are covered in what we, that, that word called theology. And there's so much bad theology out there. You need to know the Bible well enough and know doctrine well enough that you can sense the difference. There's a book, um, it was written about 20 years ago. It's called Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. At the time of the article that I got this from, it had sold two and a half million copies. And what Neil Donald Walsh did was that he started writing down direct conversations he had with God. Okay. And here's, here's one of those typical conversations between he and God. Um, listen to what he and God are talking about. God says to uh, Walsh, um, I cannot tell you my truth until you stop telling me yours. Walsh says, but my truth about God comes from you. God says, who said so? Walsh says, others. God says, what others? Walsh says, leaders, ministers, rabbis, priests, books, the Bible for heaven's sakes. To which God says, those are not authoritative sources. Authoritative sources. Walsh says, they aren't. And God says, no. Walsh says, well, then what is? And God says, listen to your feelings, Luke. I mean, does this sound like something out of Star Wars? <laughs> listen to your highest thoughts. How do you know what your highest thoughts are? Listen to your experience. Whenever any one of these differ from what you've been told by your teachers or read in your books, forget the words. Now, now this, this, of course, uh, for followers of Jesus who study his book, this is nonsense, right? And, and when you hear it, it should make the spiritual hair stand up on the back of your neck because you sense that this is not right because you've studied the book of truth that Jesus believed in, endorsed, that contains his life story. And it doesn't line up, and you know the Bible well enough. And that's, that's what Bible knowledge does for you. When you hear something that's off, you just get a sense about it. Okay. Probably more on target is what Charles Spurgeon wrote. He said, nothing makes a man so virtuous as belief of the truth. A lying doctrine will soon beget a lying practice. A man cannot have an erroneous belief without by and by having an erroneous life. I believe the one thing naturally begets the other. And, you know, Apollos was taken aside and corrected about, probably about baptism, which is a pretty narrow piece of doctrine. And it mattered enough to the strengthened disciples that Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and said, hey, let's get this one right. Okay. So all these little, seemingly littler things, they matter. You, you need to know. You need to know doctrine and theology, the truth of what the Bible teaches about our great, amazing God. And you don't have to go to seminary to get that. We'll post some resources 
online for people who speak English. Uh, they can read um, later this week. That will be an encouragement to you. So, the disciples are strengthened by the accurate teaching of the Word. We see that in both of these stories. Um, the other thing that's interesting in the last story that can be helpful for us is, especially since we're thinking about the Holy Spirit a lot this year and how He emboldens us to witness, what does this teach us about the Spirit? When you have a group of disciples that Paul runs into and he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? And they're like, holy what? Holy Spirit? What is this of which you speak? Right? They, they don't know. Um, and some would say that what happens here is a paradigm for the normal Christian life. They were believers, but they were believers without the Spirit. And later on at a second time in your Christian experience, it's necessary for you post-coming to Jesus, post-becoming a Christian, that you would have what's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a distinct and subsequent experience to your salvation. You, you would get the Spirit in this life-changing way later. Um, a second needful work of grace brought about, curiously, by greater dedication in the life of the believer in most instances. Now, one of the problems with that is if you get that from this passage primarily, what is this passage? Okay. It's a hot mess, right? It's not the clearest passage in the Bible to be getting a pattern for all of Christian life from. And there's a really good possibility here that, that these disciples were not yet believers. The language is confusing, but the way Paul treats them is clear. He doesn't instruct them about the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He teaches them about Jesus. They don't know Jesus yet. And so it appears that what we have here is probably the normal Christian experience where someone believes in Jesus and is baptized, and simultaneously with that, when they believe, the Holy Spirit comes into their life and shows up in certain ways. We'll talk about that in a minute. The Apostle Paul writes, the same Apostle Paul that's in this experience writes in 1 Corinthians 12 that in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. So when we became Christians and became part of the church, that was by the baptism of the Spirit. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all of us, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. And he envisions that as one simultaneous event, that when you get Jesus, you get the Spirit. That you're baptized in the Spirit when you become a follower, a believer in Jesus. And Wayne Grudem wisely says that these disciples at Ephesus are not a good pattern for us today in this regard. For, as we, do not, uh, for we do not first have faith in a Messiah that we we're waiting for and then later learn that Jesus has come and lived and died and risen again. We come into an understanding of the gospel of Christ immediately, and we enter immediately into the new covenant experience of the power of the Holy Spirit. So when you become a believer in Jesus, you are baptized in the Spirit. The Spirit comes and becomes part of you. You're indwelt by the Spirit when you become a believer. And that's probably what we're seeing happening here, actually. But what it does teach us here is that when the Holy Spirit comes into someone's life, it's noticeable. It makes a difference. It affects you. That's why Paul has this conversation. He meets these people, and he can tell something's missing, right? 
And he says, uh, did you guys get the Spirit when you believed? Because he can tell, talking with his people, that they're not Spirit-filled people. Okay? And then he addresses it, again, not by teaching about the Spirit, but by teaching about Jesus, because with Jesus comes the Spirit. But the Spirit is intended to affect us and change us. Once they believed in Jesus, evidenced by their baptism, they received the Spirit, which is evidenced by the gifts of the Spirit of tongues and prophecy in this case. So, how does the Spirit show Himself, manifest Himself in our life? Uh, There are many ways the Bible talks about that. One is called gifts, such as what we saw here tongues, and prophecy. Those are pretty spectacular gifts. If you believe in Jesus, find yourself talking in a language that you never studied before in a worship environment, then that's a good indicator, okay? The Spirit is probably behind that. But not all the gifts are that spectacular. When you look in the New Testament about spiritual gifts, Romans says that they include, Romans 12 says they include things like prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leadership, and mercy, 1 Corinthians 12 includes things like words of wisdom, words of knowledge, faith, healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, speaking in tongues, interpretations of tongues, um, healing, helps. Um, When I run through that list of, of gifts, do any of those resonate with you? Has the Spirit of God been giving you any kind of gifting like that? Is He is He showing Himself? through any of those kinds of ways for the good of the believers around you in your, in your church family and in your life. Because that's what the Spirit wants to do. He wants to manifest Himself through the believers that He indwells. And these are some of the very, uh, very extraordinary and yet very normal, some of them, ways that He does it. Things like prophesying and serving and teaching and encouraging and giving and leadership and mercy are some of those. Do any of those resonate with you? The Spirit manifests himself through gifts. He also does it through what's called the fruit of the Spirit, and many of you are familiar with that. It has to do with the Spirit transforming our character, and the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is is this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Spirit of God longs to produce this fruit in the life of the people that He indwells, followers of Jesus. Now, could you say that from the day you point to as becoming a Christian to now, that there's more fruit of the Spirit in your life now than there was then? Are you more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more more patient, kinder, gooder? I don't even know if that's a word. More good. (laughs) It's a fruit of the Spirit, but I don't know how to say it. More faithful more gentle, more self-control. Is that true? See, if it's not, if someone can't meet you, come to know you, and pick up the fact by the presence of the manifestations of the Spirit of God like this, there are others, but like this, then it would behoove you to go back to what Paul did with these believers and say, let's check and make sure that you really know who Jesus is. You really know what, what He's done for you. And you really have placed your faith and trust in Him as the very Son of God, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, including yours. Because the Holy Spirit ought to be evident in our lives. 
He wants to change us in these kinds of ways. Now, if anyone came to you and they were lacking these things, and they said, you know, I, I attend church all the time, but I'm not seeing any of this stuff in my life. Would you know how to wisely and accurately teach them what the Bible says about Jesus so that they could truly come to faith in Him as their Savior and Lord? Because if you want to strengthen disciples to clean up the hot messes of biblical confusion that are all over our friends' lives, then you must teach the Word accurately. You must know the Word. You must daily be reading and studying and worshiping in the Word. Would you bow with me and let me pray for you? Father, have mercy on this room of people. Lavish upon them the goodness of your Spirit. So deep into them a love for your Word so that they might truly be able to make disciples, strengthen disciples. There's so many distractions, so many other voices, so many other promises that we hear. I, I pray that you would help us have the kind of self-control by the work of your Spirit that the Bible would become central to our intake, central to what's shaping our life, central to what we believe, that we would become people of the book so that we might follow Jesus and evidence your Spirit powerfully in this world that so needs to see. So Lord, have, have mercy on us, and as you are now by your Spirit prompting us, prompting us for ways that we can immerse and learn and grow in your Word more, help us to be obedient to that. And this we ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.